Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a man you may remember best from his playing days at Arizona at Utah. Of course, now we know him as the head coach of the Utah men's tennis team. Welcome onto the show, Coach Roland Bratianu. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's great to be here. Oh, it is fantastic to have you. And, you know, this is a common theme I'm noticing amongst coaches. So many of you former players, whether it's, you know, team MVPs, all-conference, all-American, all these different things. The background for all of you coaches is just tremendous, and I'm always curious, what is it about this sport, about college tennis, that you keep gravitating back towards? Well, I think, first of all, let's start with tennis, right? I've only played it, had a racket in my hand since I'm two years old. It's something that I just, I did every day, and, and I love the game. And, you know, you, you, you end up playing college tennis, and the team format, um, so much fun. I, I left college tennis after player uh, after I played for a couple of years, and you get the opportunity to come back and you sit, you sit down and really wonder what, you know, if that's what you want to do in life. And, you know, you just miss the game. It's just, it's so much fun to be around young men around, around a team that love the same things you do. So that's my passion. Yeah. And you talk about that time away, you assisted Guatemalan Fed Cup, junior Fed Cup teams, and, you know, coached and were a hitting partner for pro tennis players as well. Is it a different sort of coaching again when you're coaching college versus coaching pros? Is that what you know? What ultimately draws you back to Utah? Well, I think you know it is different coaching. You know, I think when you're one on one, you know, the Fed Cup 
junior Fed Cup is so at random, you know, it's, it's, nowadays it's a little bit different than a new format. You spend a little bit more time together. Um, but, um, you know, when you're playing, we're spending one-on-one -on -one with a player, uh, the relationship is different, right? Mm -hmm. um, the NCAA, unfortunately, makes it, it makes it a little bit harder to have that close relationship with, with all of your team members and, and, and you have 12 guys. So that, that, that in itself makes it diff difficult. I think my wife would um, force <laughs> me, you know, if, uh, yeah. if I spent, if I have that relationship with 12 different people. <laughs> so um, it, it, it's harder, it's different, um, but it's a fun dynamic and, 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 and coaching a team and the team aspect of that um, is something that I really enjoy. You know, I've, I've always played, I played a lot of sports growing up. Um, a lot of team sports are European, so I played a lot of soccer, but, you know, my dad was a PE teacher. And um, so you played, you know, basketball and volleyball and, and all kinds of stuff. And um, there's a value to being on a team and playing for one another. And that's an aspect that, um, you know, growing up as a tennis player, you don't have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to get back to obviously where things are with Utah and your program and how you've performed over the past couple of years. But you talk about that development aspect. And obviously, fundamentally, that's the biggest appeal, allure of college tennis, the opportunity to develop your game, develop as a person, and maybe for some figure out, you know what, I'm ready to put the racket down. I'm ready to move on to other things. With all of that said, your job as a head coach is to get wins. Your job yep. as a head coach is to feel the best team possible and be prepared to earn as many victories as possible. How do you balance those two things in your practice schedule? More on court, I suppose, than off of it. But I suppose that off court element inevitably plays a factor of, you know, tennis yeah. is an individual sport, individual lessons, individual practice time that matters versus, you know, team practice and building that camaraderie, that chemistry that in a game with such thin margins ultimately can so frequently make the difference. Yeah, I think every year and every team is different in that way. You know, I think that's there is no no uh, handbook uh, for success. And I think as a coach, and I think you, you look around and you're know, fortunate enough to coach against a lot of good coaches. Uh, that's the obvious things that you see, right? Uh, mm -hmm. They're able to adapt and able to change things uh, from year to year. Groups are different. People are different and they have different needs. Uh, eras are different. You mm -hmm. know, if you compare it to when I played 20 years ago, Things are very differently now. And so um, the group of guys that we have this year, it's, it's been a really good harmony. They get along really, really well. They like being around each other. And so, uh, of course, we focused on, on personal development, but we've had a lot of practice times together, and, and it's been a real good environment where they push each other. So every year I think you got to make those assessments and, and make some changes. Where are you in terms of team practice during the team dual match season? I know some coaches will, you know, limit it to an hour and a half. Other will really stress it and build, you know, not only a great opportunity to work on the doubles point, but just building that camaraderie. I know other schools abandon it almost entirely and really focus on the individual development, getting players on court. You know, I'm not asking for percentages, and I know it adjusts year by year, but will there be times you'll pull back from the team practices and maybe other times where you'll stress it a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And earlier on in the week, I mean, let's say you have a, a classic week, right, where you play Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. Um, earlier in the week, we'll, we'll have our longest practice, kind of get that volume in. And then when we get closer to, to competition, you, you, you scale it down and, and you start focusing a little bit more on, on individual needs. Hey, you know, um, Johnny uh, needs to work a little bit extra on his serve and so-and-so needs a little bit extra time on his backhand. And so 
you start getting the players ready for the weekend and the competition and, and, and what they need. And, you know, this is the first time that we have a fairly large team. And so I also have players that um, are, are continuing to develop and continue to train harder and longer uh, than the guys that are playing. So, uh, and we have a little bit of a long-term plan for them. So um, that's, it's, it's interesting dynamic and it changes day by day. For me, it would just be Alex is working on the forehand again. We got to just keep okay. ironing that out and until it becomes okay. serviceable. Um, okay. like, there are other aspects I think you, you know, it was, this is so stupid, but we don't spend enough time talking about me on these shows. Um, but I sent a, a video of myself to Carousel and he, he sends me the first text back as he goes, A, and this is always, he goes, you're taller than I thought you'd be. And I'm like, I don't, what did you think I would be? Um, but B, he goes, you know, the backhand's not bad. And I was like, thank you. I've been saying this for a generation. Um, all of that said, you know, you talk about your team and the dynamic this fall, and I obviously want to talk about that team in particular. But when you look more broadly at your program right now, and obviously you were there as the team transition from the Mountain West to the Pac-12, but, you know, more, I suppose, pressingly, you end a 21-year drought in 2018. You qualify for the NCAA tournament. You do the same thing in 2019. And even though, you know, again, first-round exits, that's still just a clear, you know, mark forward. It shows where you have the program. Things were headed your way that 2020 season as well. You guys had gotten off to a strong start. Obviously, then COVID hits, season shut down. Again, you look at last season, 18 and 12, you're finished 50th in the country, right in the mix for the NCAA tournament. That said, did it feel like the momentum you guys were building, you know, the 2018, 2019, did it feel kind of, you know, shut off at all a bit? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's, uh, you, you, you know that, you know, after you build it up a little bit and we lost some guys, so I knew that that COVID year was going to be a little bit of a transition year. For us, uh, it's always interesting to see how guys develop and come in. And we, we had some good commitments that weren't able to come in that season. So we knew it was going to be a little bit difficult. Um, but, you know, I think every one of those years that we've had stuff like that happen, it's like you give guys an opportunity to play and get better, and it helps you in depth in the long run in future years. And so um, it was unfortunate, of course, I think for a lot of different reasons. Um, you feel you lose that momentum a little bit. Um, but I always talk to my team about, you know, there's things you can control and things you can't control. And I think this pandemic is one that you can't control. And I think our guys did a really good job, uh, you know, just handling that. And and uh, they stay, stuck around over the summer and, and they did a good job on training and, and developing their games and, and made the best of the situation. And then, you know, going into that the last year, um, I think not having a fall was difficult. You know, not being able to compete and and um, and really get ready. I think that's a major part of our um, of our program. I think of many programs. And then starting off that season, we kind of started off a little bit slow. I think we were about one or maybe one two wins away from the NCAA tournament. And you know, we just started off a little weak, and uh, we lost to some good teams. Don't get me wrong, SMU and Wichita State. Those early losses. There were good teams. They had good seasons. Um, but, you know, you, you grab one or maybe two of those wins and you make the tournament. Yeah, it's crazy how thin those margins are now. And, you know, earlier you talked about how the game has changed since your playing day. And, you know, I'm going to change the framing of this question because – and I feel bad for the coaches at the end of this because I've asked these questions so many times now. I think I'm at my best heading into these podcasts. I have the most <clears throat> crystallized form of the question. Um, but – 
if we accept the premise that college tennis is deeper now than it's ever been, that teams ranked 30, 40, 50 are just significantly better than their counterparts were even a decade ago, you know, again, looking at those thin margins, or are you looking at that depth? I guess my question now is why? Why is college tennis, in your opinion, the you know, what, where has that depth come from? Um, I, I think a few things. I think, number one, there's less teams. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? So if you take this, you know, the, the smaller pool, uh, even if the, if you had the same talent, I think it, it would be more condensed. Um, I, I also think, you know, when I made the decision at age 18 in 2000 to go to college tennis, I was one of the few in, in the Netherlands, and we had a really good generation of players back then. Um, I was one of the few players that went to the U.S., and people were like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, this is the end of your game. This is not going to work. Um, I think college tennis has shown that it's a great stepping stone uh, towards those people that need a little extra time, that don't always have the finances right away, that need to get a little bit better to, to try to make it on the tour and need a little bit more time. It, 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 it has proven itself now, especially in doubles, but certainly also in singles, that it's a, it's a great tool. And I think college tennis has done a better job of selling that too. You know, I think, uh, uh, and the USDA has helped in that. So um, I think more more talent um, in the U.S., I think more talent internationally is more open towards coming to the United States. And you see that. I mean, it's not only the depth, but you look at college tennis, you mean you look at the Wake Forest and the USC's and you look at Florida this year. I mean, it's unbelievable how good some of these players are. Mm-hmm. I also think the coaching has gotten better and deeper as well. And, you know, I said this at the top, so many of these coaches playing experience, they understand the benefits, can communicate those benefits more clearly to both U.S.-based and international players. And with that in mind, has it become easier to sell college tennis to international players over the course of the years? Um, I think there's more tools, right? Uh, I, I think it's definitely become more competitive. Uh, you know, in our situation – whether I compare it from 10 years ago when we're in the Mountain West to Pac-12, yeah, in one way it's gotten easier. You know, you're in the Pac-12, people want to play in the Pac-12. Um, on the other side, you're now dealing with a whole different level of competition for players, and you're dealing with a different level of players. They have options, right? They want to mm-hmm. go to different places. They're talking to different schools. Um, and so uh, from that perspective, for me particularly, yeah, it's been a, it's been a major change. Um, I think what's also changed is the tools that you have around you. I mean, we're, we're doing a Zoom call now, and we can see each other and have a, have a good communication. And um, the information available to prospects is enormous. And uh, that has benefits, and, and it's got its, it's, got its constant. You know. Yeah, and again, us as fans get to reap the benefits of that increased talent and, you know, again, the, the product itself getting better and better. I want to get back to that, talk about how we can t- continue to grow the game moving forward. Mm-hmm. But again, you look at your team last season, you talked about the difficulties of not having the, a fall. And I know, you know, everyone didn't have a fall, but you look overall for your team, I believe 13 different doubles pairings throughout the course of the season you played. That is on the higher side. I'm curious, is that you searching for continuity, injuries? I'm sure it's a little bit of everything, but what leads to that number? Well, I, I didn't know the exact number. I knew it was up there. <laughs> uh, I, I think we had a unique situation. We're going into the season, and, and, and in November, we lose uh, Russell Bankheim, who decided to opt out and graduated and left, uh, left the program. He was uh, scheduled to play number one doubles with Randy Corey. They, they, they'd been nationally ranked the years before. Uh, Randy had a career-ending injury 
and, and, and needed surgery for that. So, so suddenly at Thanksgiving, uh, you know, the week before Thanksgiving, we're looking at a completely different team than we are uh, the week after Thanksgiving. And um, so we had to be creative and had to look for, for options. And, um, you know, I don't want to say we always prepare and we always look at different things in practice, but when you lose your number one doubles team and uh, you have to split teams up and see on paper, not, you know, paper, sometimes things look really, really great, but you put two guys together and it doesn't mesh. And um, those are things you usually iron out in some real, real competition in the fall. And we were not able to, to experiment enough and, and um, you know, it, it, it hurt us in the spring. Has the way you coach doubles changed throughout your tenure? I mean, I think in I appreciate I think it was Coach McKenna at Wisconsin who called me uh, called me out called out this question and the yearning for years past was it really that much better than it is now? But obviously, I think serving volley is just not as much a staple of doubles as it once was, and players are capable of doing you know are hitting the forehand a hundred plus miles per hour. Why wouldn't you want them doing it as frequently as possible? Have those sorts of developments changed the way you approach the doubles point? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, we had a really long, long, lengthy conversation with our team this morning at practice about doubles. It, it is it is played completely different than the way, you know, myself and then my fellow coaches on the staff play doubles. And um, we, we were watching the Masters, was it in uh, December? Yeah. Uh, what is it called now? The ATP Finals. Yeah. Okay. And uh, if you if, if you compare that to, to 20 years ago, where guys are playing in simple classic doubles formation and coming forward a lot, and it's changed. It, it it has completely changed. And you know, but that's the fun thing about coaching, right? I mean, um, you constantly have to adapt. You constantly have to change and, and and see and learn what's around you, and and be open towards suggestions. You know, and and players. You know, we're having players from all over the world. They come with different suggestions too, and so um, that's that's the fun thing about coaching. You know, mm-hmm. no, it's it's the thing I miss most about playing tennis is that sort of experimentation and figuring it out. And I'm sure to some extent you would have liked to see your team, you know, give them more time, play it all out, and you know, fight through their issues. With that said, though, you know, looking at the records last season, you guys are winning over fifty percent of your matches in every singles flight, but uh, flight number six and you know, with that in mind, 17 and 10 at 1, 17 and 11 at 3, those are the standouts. But it felt like you guys were finding four points a bunch of different ways last season. How, how you know, did you feel that as a coach? Does that add more stress or, you know, how does that development help the team heading into this year? Well, I, th- I think, you know, we had a really young team last year, too, uh, if you really look at it. And we're still, we're going to have this group together for this season and next season. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to have some... Uh, additions coming in next year that we're really excited about. Um, we look at every, every match, uh, you know, individually and separately and, 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 and find ways, ways to win. You know, we don't always have the, the weapons that a Wake Forest has or USC has, but we have really, you know, great guys, talented guys that are really hard workers and they're hard learners. And, um, it's a learning process and, and we still are really believe in, in developing our players. And, one of the things we preach a lot here is that it's okay to make mistakes, you know, and even though, like you said in the beginning, Hey, you know, it's your job to find wins. Um, for us, you know, it's okay. Failure is part of your learning process. And so, um, yeah. Does it worry me every time to find a win and find form? Yeah, of course, but, uh, it makes it fun. And, uh, and our guys are doing a good job. I think they learned a lot last year. Um, I think one of the big things that, you know, was a big adjustment for Argentine players, 
to play up here in Utah, to play at the beginning of the season indoors, um, you know, and, and to learn to make those adjustments. They've made those adjustments this year. You can see a real significant difference in the way they practice and how comfortable they are in their new situation. So um, I think this year things should, should be a lot better. Well, with that in mind, let's talk about some of the guys. I want to start with Franco, who 15-6 and six last year uh, in dual matches and 9-4 and four at the number one position. He got the chance to play some matches in 2019-2020, and I believe he was the region ITA, Mountain, you know, Mountain, whatever that region's called, the Rookie of the Year. But 15-6 and six is a heck of a number. And I'm curious, you know, you talk about the Argentinians getting comfortable playing indoors. Was it as simple as that? What clicked for him so well last season? Well, you know, it, it, it is kind of a unique, and everybody that's played here in Salt Lake will tell you, it's a unique, unique difference. Uh, it plays a little bit quicker, bounces a little bit higher, uh, and, uh, you know, indoor tennis, we have, in January and February, we're indoors. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have our entire entire fall in the, in the outdoors, and we had beautiful weather until mid-November, then our, our, our season pretty much ended. Um, but... You know, January, February, when we're doing our matches, we're, we're indoors. And so, um, you know, this was nice. We were able to resurface our courts and slow things down a little bit. And, and that that's definitely helping them. But uh, we're making some adjustments in, in their games and in, in what the appropriate distance is to the baseline and what tempo they should be playing. And, um, and, and I think just repetition. I mean, you're talking about guys who have literally never played indoors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. And so for Franco last year, what clicked so well in his game? Well, what we made, what we were able to do with him is uh, he, he he was by nature a little bit more of a retriever, mm-hmm. right? And, and he had success in junior tennis, uh, uh, was 15 ITF and, uh, you know, grew up on the clay court. Uh, we were able to, you know, improve his serve plus one, serve plus two, you know, be a little bit more aggressive with your serve, be a little bit more aggressive with the first couple balls and get some patterns in there to get him more into being in command instead of just retrieving. And when you're retrieving up here, you can get behind quick. And uh, and so he took a little bit more command of the points and started returning a lot better. And uh, I think that was a big, uh, big switch for him. Yeah, and you bring in, you know, Francisco last year as well. He's able to have success in his first season. And again, no fall for him to adjust going from Miami over here uh, mm-hmm. to Utah. What worked so well for him? Uh, well, how was he able to have that success? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you're talking about a guy who has incredible feel and incredible, you know, understanding of the game, right? He, he, he doesn't, he's not a guy that's going to blow you away. He doesn't have any big weapons, but he's incredibly crafty and incredibly small. And if you look at the beginning of his season, he struggled in the beginning of the year. I mean, he, he was all, all the way down to number five and, and you know, scraping by. Um, once we kind of got the repetitions in and, and, and we got a little bit farther in the season and got more outdoors. March and April, we, we've been outdoors. You could see his, his confidence picking up again, and he was able to to make some changes. And when we had to go indoors to play Arizona, uh, he was the one to clinch it. When we had to go indoors against uh, Washington at Washington, he was the one to clinch it. And uh, so he had to put in the work in the beginning and just get used to that. Yeah. And, you know, again, as you look at your roster this season, you talked about it earlier, it's a bigger roster. You have 11 players, six transfers on the roster as well. Was that something you planned on doing? Obviously, you can't plan on someone transferring into the program, but the idea that all these players available on the transfer portal was the idea, because you've got a younger team, right? No seniors on the roster. That said, there's a lot of playing experience there. You know, what goes into your thinking behind shaping the roster that way? Um, I, I think last year was a unique setting, and when you're when you're looking at recruiting, 
you know, in our region, you know, it's, it isn't Southern Cal, it isn't Texas, it isn't Florida, where I could just go on a drive and find, uh, you know, players who can play at Power Five conferences. It's just, it's just the nature of the game. We're looking more at the players that we need to develop. Um, and so when we're needed to travel and we didn't know our travel situation to go out and visit nationals or international tournaments, um, you just didn't have that much data on players. Um, and so it was almost like the old school ways. I mean, I remember being recruited mm-hmm. and, you know, it was just, well, I spoke to your coach there and I spoke to your coach there and, you know, you sound pretty good. So let's give this a try. Right. Um, nowadays we're so used to, um, seeing players and not only seeing them on a video, but seeing them live and having the opportunity to sit with them face to face and with their families. We just didn't have that opportunity that year, uh, last year. And so for us, we kind of said, hey, we have a lot more data on transfers, uh, on kids that are in the portal, and so we'll have a better feeling of, of where they're at. And so we chose to go that route last year. It worked out. We're excited about the guys we're having. Um, and but, but, you know, this year when COVID, I mean, I guess it's back, right, yeah. unfortunately. But when COVID was a little bit down, we've been traveling again, and we've been able to visit players. And, you know, one of the players we signed, I, I went to visit him and see him play. So, um, you know, that dynamic is back. Well, it's so interesting to hear you say that because when I look at your fall schedule and, you know, you had players in the All-American, in the ITA Fall Nationals, but you played a lot of matches uh, here with the guys this fall. What leads to that scheduling strategy? I'm sure as well you're trying to balance. I know there's some double headers on the schedule right away. You know, January 15th, you got a double header. And, you know, again, uh, February 13th, double header as well. Why use the, I don't want to say use the competitive dates, but why compete as much as you guys did this fall? Well, uh, in, you mean in the fall? Why we compete? Yeah, the, yeah. The well, I think in the fall we're, we're trying to figure out and get to know a lot of the guys. You know, sure. that, that's one. Uh, and number two, uh, you know, that we have the luxury this year of playing the national tournaments, and that is where we we are starting. That's where we need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Franco winning, winning regionals. I think being the first in I don't know, 16, 15, 16 years to do so, uh, giving him the opportunity to go play an event that you know we haven't played in a long time. Um, uh, Geronimo and Franco being automatic qualifiers into 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 All American and them going out there uh, and not having to play the pre qualifying, those are things that we haven't been able to do in a long time. So uh, that's adding events and and for the other guys, for the newer guys, it was just an opportunity to you know give them matches. Uh, uh, a lot of our players did not have the opportunity to play over the summer or wherever country they were in. It was just a tough one. And so to get a lot of matches in was, was, was super important. With regards to the spring and double headers, you know, you know this, uh, yeah. unlike basketball or football, I can't just, hey, why don't you go in and play two games and then I'll pull you back out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I want to keep developing every single one of my players. And so whether you're number one or you're number 11, uh, we are going to try to find ways to continue to develop you. And unfortunately, that means that, Hey, we're going to have to schedule some double headers. Some of the guys are going to have to play a little bit more, but I want to give other guys opportunities to continue to develop and, and work on their game as well. With that in mind, why carry eleven guys this year? Well, eleven is not an ideal number. Uh, you know, my, my ideal number would be more around twelve, just based on our setting, and, and, mm-hmm. and you have essentially two full, uh, two full, you know, singles and double squads. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, it wasn't an exact, you know, we tried to find a 12th player. We just really didn't find the person, the right person, the right fit for the team. 
Yeah, no, it, it's again, and you know, talk to me about what you've seen from the new guys. You bring in uh, obviously a couple of brothers from UC Riverside, a bunch of new faces as well. Uh, run me through again. How quickly have they been able to acclimate themselves to all things Utah men's tennis? Well, some of them are some of them better than others, like normal, sure. right? We just had a Swiss kid, uh, Jeremiah Rossi, come in. Uh, he uh, had a week of practice, and now he's in quarantine. So, <laughs> welcome, welcome to college tennis. Uh, you know, it's just going to take a little bit of time for him to get adjusted. Um, uh, Bruno Kaula, uh, incredibly fortunate to have him come after playing number one at, at UNC Wilmington. Um, he has an exciting game, a lot of experience at a, at, a, at a good program, you know, and he played a lot of good players last year, and he's going to help us in the middle of the lineup. His adjustment has been just wonderful. Uh, he's playing some good tennis right now. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned the brothers. Um, super hard workers, great team guys. Um, Jay right in the mix there for a spot in the lineup uh, and, and, and singles and in doubles. And, and, and Mikey just, you know, pushing everybody every single day at practice. So we felt they were the right personality, the right fit for the team. And then Charlie, Charlie came to us, right, you know, right after the, the, the deadline and uh, we were fortunate to get him kind of eligible, but we felt, you know, same thing with him. He, he's a guy who really developed over the last two years. Two years ago, he didn't appear on anybody's radar, and he worked incredibly hard and, and worked his way up, and he's going to add some good depth, and, and he has a bright future with us. Yeah, no, and, you know, again, with all that in mind, as you move forward over the next couple of years, and you already mentioned it last year from a recruiting standpoint was a unique season with that said, how will you balance moving forward, bringing in the four-year guys versus knowing there are some exceptional players out there on the transfer portal that I can bring in that can help contribute to my team right away? Well, you're going to keep the you – know, your strategy has to change, right? Sure. Um, it was interesting to see, you know, I think that when do those recruiting rankings always come out? You know, yeah. in, the, in the fall and the spring. And um, I think a lot of schools, a lot of programs are keeping the door open. Uh, one of the things that plays a big role into that is how do you treat those players in that COVID year? Are you going to give them that waiver or you're not? Um, and, it, you know, when do you make that decision? And so it's an interesting dynamic. And, uh, you know, we felt in, in, in signing Burke uh, and bringing him into our program for the fall that it was somebody that we knew that was an improvement to our team. And that's a good fit, a good fit for uh, our program, but also playing in, in his game style is a great fit for us, and um, um, and, and we're still we're still in the hunt for for one more player. So, um, yeah, we're just keeping uh, all our eyes and ears open, and uh, we have some good options. We're talking to some exciting people, and we're just going to see where it leads us. I like that. Uh, two more schedule questions for you. Then I want to talk big picture, but. You know, looking at um, – did you guys have the chance to play the, the kickoff weekend this year? Did you guys opt out? We did. We did. And we decided to opt out. <clears throat> it was just too many questions, that, that one. Sure. You know, we didn't know uh, COVID situation, budgets. Uh, you know, obviously, we took a big hit the year before uh, University of Utah did. Um, so, you know, we're better than – in a better situation financially than we thought. But we also had a big thing of just opting out. We also had a lot of matches from the year before that were scheduled to play and that we really wanted to honor that word played, whether it was us or it was them, and that we really wanted to make sure we got those out of the way. Obviously, we didn't think we're going to be in the same situation again this year. So hopefully we get through the year. But, you know, that way we're done with it, right? We have all our uh, 
contractual obligations or honor code, however you want to call gentlemen's agreements uh, out of the way. And, and we have a good schedule. I feel, I feel good about our schedule. It's a nice lead up uh, into our Pac-12 play with some uh, good challenges early on, a good Denver team, an experienced Denver team going and then getting on the road. And two days later at New Mexico, they're young, they're talented. Um, Texas Tech, always tough. We get them at home. Uh, and then LMU on one of a return trip of that year before, they have a very good team. I know they just lost, you know, their number one player, uh, but but they have a really good team. And um, it's just, it, it's a nice, nice lead up. We have full control over our schedule and everything. And there were no questions heading into June and July. And um, But, you know, if we have a good season this year, we plan on being in the kickoff next year. With that in mind, and you've had the Mountain West perspective, the Pac-12 perspective, would you like to see the 500 rule stay or go away? Um, I, I would like it to stay. Interesting. Like we rarely get stays amongst the Power Five coaches. Make the case. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe it is my background a little bit, but um, I, I'd like it to stay. I, I thought last year there were a few schools in there handful of schools that made the tournament that, that had losing records. I know it was the exception uh, that was given due to COVID. Um, I, I, I think if you want to play in the tournament, sure, we want to have the best of the best, but I, I think you got to have a winning record. And there's enough opportunities, enough schools to play. Like we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of depth out there. There's a lot of exciting teams out there that deserve an opportunity to play. And I think if we're just going to focus on um, you know, the big schools just focusing on the big schools. I don't think that's good for college tennis. Yeah, completely fair. With that in mind, uh, again, as we go broader here, one last, I suppose, Utah-centric. Give me the pitch. Why should I come out to Utah? Why should I roll with the Utes moving forward? Well, because it's an exciting place, and it's, it's, it's kind of been the hidden gem for the longest time. Um, if you see what's happening around us, uh, whether it's our football team or gymnastics, uh, the exciting things that are going on here, uh, Salt Lake has been one of those things that up, maybe up until, you know, the Winter Olympics in 2002 was just an unknown place. And everybody that comes here is wild by uh, what a great, great, cool town it is. Uh, you got four real seasons, um, beautiful summers, uh, beautiful winters with snow and you can go skiing, drive up the mountains, go skiing. Great education, you know, great education. And um and you're playing in the Pac-12. I mean, there isn't a conference. Sure, we can have the debate about the SEC and the Pac-12 and the SEC and ACC, but or the Big 12. Uh, but you know, you're playing in one of the most historic conferences in the in the country, and uh, it it this is a really cool place. It's up and coming, and uh, yeah, come and visit. Come and visit. Yeah. I would be happy to. I think I'd look good in Utah red uh, for whatever yeah. it's worth. Come on up. Yeah, I, I like it. With all of that in mind, again, some big picture questions for you. And we talked earlier about, you know, the growth of international players in college tennis, how it's become easier to sell the the sport. But with that said, you know, I, I'm curious because talking to all the coaches, what I've started to realize is coaching X's and O's on a tennis court is like 20% of the job. And so much of the rest of it is, you know, budgeting and, you know, building that marketing, building that community, getting people to buy into your program so your, your players feel like someone has a vested interest in their success. How much does that resonate true with you? Um, and, you know, again, what are the things you have done to focus on building, you know, a tennis community in Salt Lake City? Well, you know, for us, we'll start with that last question. We, we've had, you know, a, a rich tennis history. Uh, we, we have an NCAA champion in Greg Holmes who won the singles in 
83, I think. Uh, we've had teams uh, that were ranked top 10 and, and top 16. We've had players that, that have played on the pro tour. And, you know, things got a little tough in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, but we have a really, uh, you know, a good group of alumni that loves tennis and that stayed connected. And, and uh, so that just really helped, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is our fan base in Utah. Uh, if you watch the Rose Bowl, uh, you've maybe got a sense of it, right? I mean, we had 60,000 people, you know, drive out, fly out, bike out, however they got there. And um, I think we got some of the best fans and most underrated fans in the country. And so people love the youths, you know, we, we don't, you know, you have the jazz and they do absolutely great. Uh, but, you know, it isn't like a big, big town like LA and they have so much going on, right? Utes are a really big deal in town here. And so, uh, you know, we have a, a hardcore fan base and they and they love our love our sports so so that's really helped um so um you know unfortunately we hope we hope we're going to get fans again this year right i mean it's been a couple years so um remind me of your earlier question no i was gonna say that's that's what we're all looking for and again when talking to other coaches what advice would you give what you know things do you focus on in trying to get those fans to come back out and return to matches all those things what are the things you guys are doing at utah to ensure those things happen? Well, the easy thing is to, is to point at the quality of the team, right? I mean, the level has gone up. It's fun. It's exciting. I think the new format of no ad scoring and, and uh, you know, the quicker doubles, it, it, it is a more exciting, quicker, uh, quicker product to sell, and people like it. Um, we do do, uh, you know, the simple things, right? The emails. Uh, we have our fan days. We, we, we do taco trucks and, and, and pizzas and, and, you know, we have a, the way we operate our, our tennis facility is very different than, than most, most of the schools in the country. We run it as a public facility. So we have about five or 6,000 people a year that come in and rent courts from us. So we're in constant contact and, and communications with our community. Sure. And um, um, so for us, you know, reaching out is, is fairly simple and uh, people are excited. We're, we're going to get started again. Yeah, no, I, I miss the roar. I mean, I, I assume you were at the NCAA double. Uh, yeah, you must have been at the NCAA final. And, you know, again, having all of the Florida fans even there for the Pepperdine-Texas match and then obviously having all of the Florida fans there for the Florida-Baylor match, you just forget how extraordinary a locked-in college tennis crowd and how, you know, 100 people at a tennis match make much more of a difference than 110,000 at a football game. And just so I would echo your sentiment. I'm very much looking forward uh, to having fans back in the stands. That said, again, when we talk about growing the game moving forward, I don't want to say it's clear college tennis has a marketing problem, but there are clearly ways college tennis can get better at marketing the sport moving forward because we've already made the argument. The product is as good, if not better, as exciting, if not more exciting than it has ever been you know, one point college tennis coaches have made on these shows is we need to have a bigger buy-in from the pro tour, and there needs to be a better connectivity between the pro tour and college tennis. <clears throat> Again, I feel bad for the later coaches because they're getting the better version of this question, but my question would be how? How do we go about doing that as a college tennis community, getting the pro entities that be to take an interest in our sport? Yeah, that's difficult. I, 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 I think the biggest thing, what you're starting to see in the big shift in college athletics and not just in college tennis is, is the development in NIL and the, the, the you know, players or you know, uh, student athletes being allowed to start making some money and that amateurism 
is going to be treated differently. I think in our sport, uh, it, it, is, it has held us back a lot. That's just my personal opinion. I, I think, um, you know, when you go watch college basketball, you can watch the future Magic Johnson or the future Larry Bird or, you know, the Michael Jordans. And, and uh, you know, in college tennis, you know, there's there, you know, there for the longest time there haven't been because they, that, that connection just haven't, hasn't been there. It's changing. It's changing. And I think that's why we're also seeing some of the excitement come back. Um, but, you know, if in a, in a dream scenario, I would love to see things like that lifted. I, it's still a mystery to me why someone who's ranked or 500 in the world who's losing money um, playing on the tour is going to be viewed as a, as a professional athlete. I don't think it's beneficial. Um, you see the German leagues where uh, still a lot of good players go and play and people in the community show up because ultimately what you want to see is good tennis. Mm -hmm. well, you know, that's it. And uh, so I think we can do better. Hopefully things in the NIL and, and, and the, the way that things are headed might change that. I don't know. No, and of course, another piece of it, everyone will say, we got to get college tennis broadcasted more widely, got to get it on television. I think the two schools of thought is because, as you mentioned, you got to make college tennis an appealing developmental pathway for all of these players out there. At the same time, you have to make it an entertaining product. And every coach to a T will talk about how at first they might have been hesitant, but it's clear no ad scoring does not compromise development, that forcing these players to play these pressure pack points, good for them moving forward. That said, you know, again, I do worry sometimes when we talk about adjusting the game that it compromises the developmental aspect. And, you know, again, if it's not a developmental pathway, the players aren't going to play, the product diminishes, it doesn't matter how entertaining it is. Is that something you reconcile with in these conversations as well? Yeah, yeah. And, and for I was one of those people that was very skeptical when we're going back to no ad scoring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, you, if, if we're selling ourselves as hey, we're a stepping stone to go play professional tennis, then we probably should have a similar format. I mean, we've got to teach them that. Um, in all reality, I, I think I'm going to turn it around completely. I, I think it's been beneficial, not only because it's fun uh, to watch, it, it gives the returner a bigger chance and you're seeing more breaks. Um, it, it, it has the aspect. I mean, this is one of those conversations when I grew up, you, you probably had it too. And one of your coaches says, you know, this is a real big point. Okay. Well, you tell me which one is a big point. They're all big points, yeah. right? You constantly have to go in and play every point. There's no relaxing. It's, oh, you know, I'll get a deuce point and we'll get it. No, a deuce point, you know, is trouble. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think the level of engagement and the pressure that it puts on players to constantly stay engaged and to stay mentally focused out there um, has increased. Yeah, and, you know, again – no ad scoring has shortened matches for sure. We're typically in that three-hour time window. That said, now it's TV, be two, be two and a half hours. Something we've talked about on this podcast is the idea of exploring a simultaneous start. and I, Or, you know, again, moving the doubles back to the back end of the match after the singles so that it's sudden death or, you know, everything's worth one again. And unless it's 5-1 in singles, you still end up playing it. And let's be honest, in a 5-1 singles match, who wants to see doubles? It's a blowout at that point. You don't deserve to yeah. win. Um yeah. Again, does does that compromise the developmental aspect if you start doing those sorts of things is, or a simultaneous start, something you'd be willing to consider? When you're talking simultaneous start, I just want to make sure. So I four singles, one doubles, and everything yeah, okay. starts at once. Everything's yeah. two out of three sets, but it all starts at once. Yeah, I mean, I, I to be very honest, I, I it, it it's always like 
you know, it seems like someone is always trying to push something, right? Mm -hmm, uh, sure. And I remember the conversations we had when we were switching to no ad scoring and, and reducing, not only that, but we reduced the doubles from a, from a mm -hmm. pro set, right? And I think that's, that's probably one of those underrated changes yeah. because I think it's had a huge impact. Um, I, I, it is a, currently a really, really good format. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to see is just let it develop a little bit. I mean, how sure. long have we been doing this? Uh, you know, it seems what has been four, five years. Yeah. Um, let it develop a little bit. Let's see where we can take this. And um, but again, and there's probably a lot of people that have well, higher degrees and, and, and the, are smarter at this than I am. Well, the only reason I no, I appreciate your candidness. The only thing I would say, and I'm sure you feel this, is that lull, right? Because you have the adrenaline shot that is the 40 minute doubles point, and then unless you're me or you. First sets can be a little boring to the casual fan, and you mentioned it, taco trucks, pizza, those sorts of things help, of course, but that lull shouldn't exist, and that's like the frustrating part, and so, you know, you've had coaches come on here, Brad Dancer says, put an hour and a half on the clock, every game counts, and you're doing total game score at the end, those sorts of things, like... I don't think that compromises development because fundamentally you're still playing tennis. Now it's not the set scoring, but it's time tennis, but it's still tennis. Like I, I don't, again, that's where I, the question I asked earlier, finding that balance between not compromising the development while keeping it entertaining. I do still think there are, there are ways you can find that balance and further alter things. Yeah. I think there's always just funky things out there, right? Sure. I mean, and, and looking for, for ways I remember the the ATP tour struggling, you know, in the in the 90s with the the Krychecks and the Venezuelans where they were just serving aces and now we're going to look at, you know, how to slow the game down and and you had those conversations. Um they were talking four game sets and you know, let's the rule was going to be reviewed and ultimately um what does it lead into? I mean, we've had one of the the best generations of tennis uh, ever. Uh, and, and I would safe to say on both sides, you know, you get, you get Serena and you get Roger and you get Rafa and, and how exciting has tennis been? Uh, so sometimes we just got to look, instead of trying to look at all this fancy ways to make it exciting, maybe we just got to look and see how we can improve quality. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I will say I watched Todd Martin hit a center of the court backhand the other day. Todd Martin's from Michigan. Okay. You know, which is where I'm from, for what it's worth. Exceptional player, obviously. It was yeah. atrocious. I watched that middle of the third. I was like, I was like, that would not be six. Like, it's like if I could get the return. I mean, nowadays a college player would get that return back, and you would lose the rally because, yeah. yeah. But you're, I mean, again, different time, different era, different technology. Yeah. I know. Um, but with that said, let me throw one more rule at you that I think you might like: substitutions. We're the only yeah. sport without it. I don't yep. think a match should ever end with injury. But if it was like a baseball thing where once you're subbed out, you're subbed out. But you had a sub, especially you have 11 players on your bench. Don't you think it helps development if these players, they can't have those 10-minute lulls because if they do, you'll yank them? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's it's the example. and We talked about it earlier, why why I like to play some doubleheaders and to give other mm -hmm. guys chances. Um, I never really thought about it to really implement it. I, I, I think it'll be pretty funky. Because how are you going to keep uh, stacking and that kind of stuff? I mean, where, where are you going to sub suddenly at number one? Are you going to, uh, you know, how is that going to impact it? Um, but it's an interesting thought. Yeah, I, I, to me it's fun. Well, the idea that a match should never end by an injury retirement, I think that's when all the coaches get behind. Where it's just yeah. like, hey, we're putting in our first bench guy because, yeah. you know, again, for the fans, this is silly. 
that would be fun. I also think we should get rid of the coin flip, and I think head coaches should play one point, drop and hit feed. You know, winner decides the serving arrangements on every court. I like who who wouldn't like that. I I, I think we should play a few more points. I think. It'd be funny. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the answer I like to hear. Um, yeah. All right, Todd Chapman, Kansas women's head coach, came on this show a couple days ago and said he would be more surprised if the NCAA individual tournament did not move to the fall than if it did. What's your take on that? Interesting conversations going on. I've been fortunate to be, you know, some of it part of it, and, and I've just mm-hmm. been following it. Um, you know, definite pros and cons. It's going to be interesting to see what the final decision is. Going, to, you know, when it it, it, it just, I think everybody's in agreement that it's it currently just doesn't fit where it is at, and uh, there's a lot of moving parts in that. Um, I, I think, yeah, 50, I'd probably be more 50, 50. I wouldn't be surprised if it moves to the fall, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it stays where it's at. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see that if it indeed moves to the fall, how are we going to deal with some of these issues of, you know, I mean, what does everybody play three events in the fall, um, and 22 in the spring, are we going to get more events uh, to prepare and have actual you know, an actual real way to determine who are the best 64 players to go in that tournament. Uh, those those things, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions to it. Well, one solution, you get rid of the current ranking system. You go to a 12-month ranking system where how you do it is the seniors drop out or whomever leaves college tennis drops out once they're no longer playing. Is that something you'd be in favor of? Yeah, I, I think I think there's improvements to be made in the ranking system too. I'm on the ranking committee. It's yeah. an interesting you know, first year that I'm on there. It's an interesting, uh, uh, you know, I'm just learning on it and first year being on it, just kind of seeing and how how it's in, it's an interesting interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that we can do way better. I know it's it's hard because you're you know injecting and not so much about the players leaving. You just take them out, right? But it's about those new players coming in um, and. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be opposed against a, t- a 12 month or you know continuous ranking and uh, take the subjectivity that is currently out there. I think you got to take it out. Well, you you talk about that, and again, in terms of accuracy for the rankings, you feel it seems like you're a data driven guy. You know, there's a school of thought that the college tennis rankings should just be about the college results. We're ranking college tennis players and how they are in college tennis. That pro results, UTR, those sorts of things shouldn't matter. Where are you on that camp? Do you want a more accurate ranking? or do you, I hate to frame it like that because it sounds like, well, duh, I want the most accurate. But do you want the inf- ranking with every piece of information available included? Or should it just be a college-centric ranking? Well, I, th- I think if you're playing college tennis, it should be a college tennis ranking, right? I mean, sure. that's what we're playing. Um, I, I guess it would induce or promote a lot of kids to continue to play over the, over the breaks, and, and, and we all are in favor of that. Uh, but I, I think there are current things that we can do better in our ranking system. Uh, I, I think, for example, that every player should be ranked, sure. um, and 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 we should have more dynamic, uh, dynamic rating, dynamic ranking system. Um, Germany has a really good example of that. I want to say that's perfect, but uh, we can look around us and and probably do better in that way. Yeah, I I would agree, and I think it's fast. I would love to be again. If you want to leak emails to someone from the ranking committee, I am right here for you because <laughs> that is right up my alley of nerddom. Just to figure out the best, I feel like the current team ranking system. Since we're nerding out, I feel like it rewards victories. It does not punish losses. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. The reward is definitely there and, and to play. And if you lose, you lose. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I, I think there's just. 
I don't think it's a bad system, but I think we can do better. And I think we can more adequately depict, uh, you know, who's one and who's 200, for example. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm more of a fan. And I think it's better promotion. Uh, you're talking about information. I mean, their information is so readily available. And I'm glad to see that now we're going to have a 75 ranking out mm -hmm. and available to everybody again. Um, I think those things are, are, are good. I mean, if you're a program and you take, you're a coach and you take over a program that's ranked 150 and you have a great first year and you end up 76 and you're still out of those rankings, you have nothing to prove to prospects and see how you do better, right? Hey, I look, look up how much better we're getting. It might take you two years to get in that and to start showing that. And um, so, yeah, I, I think a loss against the losses should count heavier. I agree with that. Yeah. All right. Last four questions for you. Should a non-American winner of the NCAA tournament receive a wild card? Yes. Unequivocally, <laughs> right? No, I think that I think so. I mean, it, again, we want the best of the best to play college tennis. Mm -hmm. And it, it, if it means that you can tell a player, hey, you're going to get a wild card uh, to the U.S. Open, um, whether you're foreign or you're American, yeah, I think it should be available. Yeah. All right. Uh, with that in mind, again, some funky ones down the home stretch. If you flip the dual match schedule – and played in the fall as opposed to the spring, all the team action. Would Utah be able to play more outdoor tennis? Let's say you start in August as opposed to, you know, how the start is now. Because I know in Michigan we would have been able to. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're the same here. Uh, I think our last day of, uh, of our scheduled, you know, NCAA limited, I think we were November 14. Uh, we were still practicing outside. Uh, we had beautiful weather here, and I think we probably could have stretched another week or so, two weeks or so before we had, you know, December, we ended up having some some rougher weather. Uh, December through February, we're indoors, um, and then and then March and April, you know, it's spring, so mainly outside, we'll have a day or so where we go inside. So yeah, from that perspective, if we go to the fall, we would be more outside. It's just an interesting thing I like to throw out there. Um, all right, what did it mean to you Talk me through the moment, 2018, 21-year drought, you end it, make the NCAA tournament. Well, you know, I played here, yeah. and I transferred from Arizona, and I played here, and we, uh, the teams I played on, we, we weren't very good. Like, let's be honest, you know, we, we, we weren't competing for Mountain West Conference championships when I played. And um, so, you know, things changed. And, and, and I, I often tell my teammates, like, you got to come here. And you don't recognize it's not only athletics, but in academics, it's such a cool place. Things have changed so for the better. And um, it was a very emotional year because we, we had a great start. I think we got up to 24 in the country. And, you know, we kind of got the yips there in April. And we, we, we of course, played a tough schedule. And for the first time, I think – in a very long time, maybe ever, we had the big schools in the Stanford's and the USC's and the UCLA, and they didn't pull guys out and they and they came prepared, mm -hmm. right? And and they didn't take us easy. It wasn't wasn't like we we're going to sneak up on them, and so that was a new experience for us. Like they were ready, we they knew we were good, and um, and we started losing a little confidence. And I think we were the last team in. So when we sat there in that room, um, I, I wasn't thinking so much about the twenty-one year drought. Uh, I was thinking more about, you know, those guys on the team and, and the work they put in and, and the start they had and how, you know, we've had, I think we had four, four, three matches in a row that we won. Mm -hmm. um, I thought we were deserving to go and you just hold your breath that the committee agrees with you and, and to see their joy and their happiness and all the work they've done uh, to get there. 
that was it was emotional. It was emotional. It was emotional for the program. Uh, it was a good day. I, I, I think I didn't sleep for a few nights and just continued to smile. <laughs> yeah. um, and, I, you know, people remind you after, hey, it's been 21 years. You read the news, it's 21 years. And then you start realizing, you know, all those players, all those generations of players that never had the opportunity to play. And they were there were some there were some good players. There were some awesome players in our program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it was too long. So, you know, we got we got the team. We kind of, you know, we're like I said, we we're about a match or so short last year. We, we felt we were good enough. We probably, you know, kind of upset with ourselves last year. We feel we have the team to make it this year. And we we plan on not making another 21. We plan on being there this year. That's what I like to hear. With that in mind, you could re-coach any match from your coaching career. It could be a victory. could be a loss, whatever it may be. You get to re-coach any match from your career. What do you pick and why? Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I'll tell you. Um, it was the, the match against Cal Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Played at home. Uh, Peter Wright, you know, legendary coach. It was the team that the Cal team that made the Elite Eight, uh-huh. and I th- I think it was 2017 if I'm sure. Uh, and we've had we've had Cal in here, we've had SC in here, we've had UCLA on the ropes, and it was just super close close losses. But that loss was three all, and we have a, a, a Jamie Swigger, two star transfer from Idaho State, uh, come in and, and transfer, and he ended up playing, and he's playing a blue chip recruit, you know, Cal guy. It shouldn't be a match, and um, uh, you know, at four all in the third, we got broken and they served it out, and it was this unbelievable match. Um, looking back at it, I, w- I would like that one back. Yeah, no, I like, it. and I, it's so frequently I learned it's it's the loss, not the victory, uh, that the right. coaches end up wanting back. That's yeah. half the fun. All right, my yeah. last question. This might be the most important one, and I know now you've probably aged out of this portion of your career. Um, but how frequently on Halloween are you Andre Agassi? <laughs> I, I, it's funny how many times I have people, uh, you know, comment like that. I, I think the hairdo probably gives it away. Right? <laughs> <I bet>. uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's going to come back. Right now, I got Halloween. We didn't have growing up in home. Sure. Uh, so it was a new thing for me coming to the U.S. Um, I have little kids. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think they know who Andre Agassi is yet. <laughs> uh, so right now we're focusing on being the astronaut and the police officer, but um, maybe they'll come back. Oh, when they're like eight to twelve and they can appreciate the reference, they're like, "Dad, you kind of killed it." And you'll be like, "I know." <laughs> you'll be like, "You're welcome." By the yeah. way, Agassi, the only one whose highlights translate, where you're like, oh, "Okay, I could see that guy having yeah. success in this era." Uh, with all that said, Coach, though, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Obviously, we'll be wishing you and your team safety, health, and, of course, success throughout the course of 2022. And, yeah, don't be a stranger. You are always welcome back on this show. Thanks for having me. You're awesome. Thank you. Uh, of course. Take care, Coach. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.